Welcome to the Flourishing Pastor Podcast. You hear a lot about this idea of flourishing, but if you're a pastor or if you lead a nonprofit or business, it's fair to ask what flourishing actually looks like for you and for your work. Here's the reality. Flourishing for individuals and for churches alike is about far more than leadership tips or strategic plans. Instead, when we read in the scriptures that King David shepherded the people of Israel with integrity of heart and with skillful hands, part of what we're reading is a dynamic, multi-layered framework in which both leaders and those they lead can flourish. I'm Aaron Klein-Hanbury, and over the course of 10 conversations, pastor and author Tom Nelson and I will look at what he calls the lost art of shepherd leadership and how recovering it can help leaders and the work they lead flourish. I'm Robert Cavolo, and I'm an associate pastor at Christ Church Sierra Madre, which is actually in Los Angeles, California. When I was uh, a young Christian, and by young I mean like in high school, <laughs> I noticed that there were certain things that we weren't allowed to kind of talk about at church. And, and then when I went on to university, um, I was still attending my home church, and I was studying all these things that were quite interesting. And I couldn't bring those into the conversation at church. It was almost like people would look at you as if we just can't talk about these things. Um, And I think it was that experience that really left me unsettled. I didn't want to have a Christianity that couldn't leave the building, so to speak. And that's what kind of made me kind of protest that at a personal level. And then at the same time, there was this kind of awakening to the Lordship of Jesus and the need to... um, I think the word integration was big for me in my 20s. (laughs) I think that's kind of like a gateway word that we use, you know, even though I'm not quite sure I like that language so much. I'm not sure integration is always best. I think sometimes I think it's far more complex, the relationship between our faith in any given, you know, cultural or social arena, you know. And um, so, uh, yeah, so that'd be my own personal story. What I've seen in terms of pastoring that is really amazing As we've been attempting, and we're still on a long journey here, but as we've been attempting to integrate faith and work initiatives in our church, which is one of the ways in which we we show the Lordship of Jesus and we help people, disciple people in living out the Lordship of Jesus in their everyday life, we have actually seen people attracted to the church that would not be attracted. For instance, this last Sunday, we had a guy that was an atheist a few years ago who uh, is in the music industry and he mixes music. We had a little video interview with him on Sunday morning, and he was very candid about he's struggling to rethink his vocation because he used to be all about ego. And then after that, we had another guy come up who he's also a new convert. He was an atheist a few years ago, and he's in the same industry, and he led a prayer for people in the music industry and talked about the gift of music and all this stuff. Anyway, this was this last Sunday. Well, I came to find out afterwards that there was a visitor who was uh, visiting our church for the first time, relatively exploring Christianity, and the fact that people were praying for him and for his work, and that he would do good work that would bring blessing, rocked this guy. And he said, you know, I don't know what Christianity is about, but if it means that my vocation matters and 
you know, I want to come back. I want to hear more about this. So it actually, ironically, is as Christians are, you know, living out faithfully in their sector, it actually ends up showing the attractional nature of Christianity within the sector, which is, I think, where most people spend most of their time at work. But also, strangely, when people come to church, they also go like, oh, Christianity is about the world. It's not some life-denying, you know, world-denying kind of faith where people are just, uh, you know, hiding out from the rest of reality. I think that's, that's really powerful. We've been discussing foundational issues in the heart and life of leaders. And we're going to pivot a little bit now and talk about some more practical things, some actions, the, the doing, uh, the skillful hands of the leader. That starts with, uh, no surprise, where we are, where we are geographically, and where we are culturally. So we're going to talk a lot about what our culture is, where it is now, where it's going, and how to navigate that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Hey, Tom. Aaron, it's great to be with you. I'm having such a good time uh, in this conversation. I'm really looking forward to it today. We've been talking about Psalm 78, 72. And the various, there's just three parts of that that have framed and shaped um, your thinking on these issues. And then, of course, this book, The Flourishing Pastor. And in that verse, verse 72 of the 78th Psalm, we get, so he, talking about David, shepherded them, his people, according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. So the skillful hands dynamic is largely what we're going to start talking about now. But that element is inextricable from these other two being shepherded and integrity of heart. Can you talk about that organic flow, how these all fit together? I love this verse because it is so deeply and intricately connected on these three dynamics. So uh, you'll notice in this culmination of this brilliant psalm, David is the poster boy for this leadership framework. And it first begins with his sense of calling, his place in the world, his stewardship of vocational calling that is guided by the shepherding metaphor. Uh, and again, the importance of that guiding imaginary around each of our vocational calling and the importance of that. So once that's framed, then of course the question is, what does that entail? What does a shepherding leader involve, right? What's the foundation? And then it goes to what he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, his whole interior world, the foundation of who he is and who he's becoming as the very foundation of leadership for him to fulfill that calling of shepherding. But it's not just who he's becoming, as vital as that is, it is also what he is doing <laughs> and the fruitfulness of his leadership. So you have this beautiful picture of the framework of his vocational calling as a shepherd leader, the very essential foundation of who he is as a leader, who he is becoming as an integral whole leader. And out of that, there is this fruitful, effective, competent, impacting leadership. And of course, we see the same framework, don't we, in Genesis 17, when God says to Abram, now Abram, walk before me, that sense of intimacy of who you are, be whole, right? Integrity of heart, same language. And then out of that, I'm going to give you a new name, a new identity, and you are going to bless the nations. You're going to have a fruitful life, a legacy. So I think that is really the framework we're talking about. And they are woven together in this beautiful tapestry of a faithful leader 
a faithful servant leader. A shepherd calling, integrity of heart, and then the skillfulness, or maybe we say in that Hebrew idea of tobana yod is the phrase, it is an artistry, a gifted artistry that understands its context and innovation and adaptation and relational giftedness. I think this idea is becoming clearer the more we talk back and forth about these. Certainly with this concept of skillful hands, you're giving us a picture of something that's effervescent almost, that once you have this calling clear and this growing sense of wholeness and integrity, that the overflow or the fruitfulness is this leadership. Right? Yeah, we lead and love and serve out of the overflow of our soul, of who we are and who we're becoming, yeah. We've also discussed ways in which these are not always logically blocked together. In fact, they can feed each other. Can you talk about that dynamic for a minute? That it's not as though we have to ace the shepherding one and then move on to the integrity of heart one. There's a dynamic of increasing growth and understanding, right? Throughout all of life of all three of those components, I think that's what makes the adventure so exciting and uh, engaging is that we have a greater, as we do the work, right? Uh, we have a greater understanding of our calling, right? We have great greater clarification of, my, of our vocational faithfulness, what that is as we do it, right? Not just from a book, but also what we do shapes who we're becoming, right? Uh, it is often said that we shape our work and our work shapes us. So there's a spiritual formation aspect in the skillful hands of a leader and what they do and how it forms them, or again, malforms them. So they are, they're deeply connected, right? Like my understanding now of my pastoral calling is much more compelling and clear, not perfectly, than it was 35 years ago when I began because of what I'm called to do and experience and the tacit knowing that I'm growing and because I'm experientially living into that work of a pastor or work of a leader. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful symmetry and connection. There's an interesting thing to me that you do in your book, The Flourishing Pastor, where when you pivot to this third category of skillful hands and set us up for this conversation about leadership in action, the way this plays out in the lives of pastoral leaders, leaders in other avenues, you don't launch in with tips about job reviews or meeting schedules or even delegation and these sorts of things. You start talking at first about navigating culture, about the place we are, which is natural after the conversation about embodied spirituality that we would talk about, the environment in which we live and operate. It's very important because in God's providence, as redemptive history moves forward, each of us finds ourselves in a particular cultural context that is under the sovereignty of God, but requires ongoing wise navigation of a constant changing external cultural context. You know, it's often said by leadership gurus that effective leaders have stereo vision. In other words, they have one eye that's focused on the internal aspects of the organization, its effectiveness, right? Its efficiencies, how is it doing? But they also have another eye on the external factors that are profoundly shaping that institution or organization. And a leader, an effective leader, is looking at the organization or the church, wherever that they're leading, but also looking at the changing environment it's embodied in as an institution. And I grew up in hockey world, okay? Uh, I grew up in Minnesota where hockey's king. 
every kid had uh, an arena or an outdoor rink. It was just woven into our culture. But Wayne Gretzky is probably the greatest hockey player that at least has lived up to a long point. And his famous dictum is what made him great is he skated where the puck was going, not where it was. And I love that metaphor because I do think that's what we need to have an eye on is what are the cultural forces? What are the external forces? Technology, values, worldviews, all these things that shape and profoundly impact our organization where it's heading. So I would say that is really, really an important part of the stewardship of leader. You think about a shepherd going back to the agrarian. The shepherd not only needs to know the flock, but they need to have a good sense of the landscape. What are, where are the predators, right? Where's the growth? Where's the grass? What's the weather doing? All these external factors that are profoundly shaping the health of that sheep or that, that the sheep that they serve. So it's not just how are these sheep right now, that myopia, but what's the cultural context? What are the forces that are shaping and influencing for good or bad that congregation or that organization? So it's a vital part of leadership. It's a vital part of stewardship. And we see this in, for example, the Old Testament where the sons of Issachar are highlighted as men who understood their times with knowledge what Israel should do and their kinsmen were all at their command. They're highlighted by the chronicler as like people who not only knew God and knew his word in Revelation, but knew the cultural context, the geopolitical context in which they emerged. There are comical applications of this at both extremes, right? So there's these pastors who preach an unchanging message and it's so often rooted in, you know, the Texas Receptus or the King James Bible. Right, it's, right. it's almost aggressively non-contextualized. And there's this other, often sort of a prosperity tradition uh, type of church that's doing sermons based off film trailers and almost overly culturated, where it's unclear what exactly they're saying that's unique from anything else. How do you balance those two, or is balance even the right metaphor? Well, a couple of thoughts come to my mind. I think that's a really good analysis um, is, first of all, sometimes we have an idolatry of relevance. And I think we have to be careful because there's a tension here, right? Sometimes we can be enamored by relevance to be the latest, greatest, hippest. Uh, and, and that's a danger because there are certain aspects where we need to be irrelevant. But I would say, I think it was Helmut Thielicke, um, the German theologian, that's my best attribution that I've ever found, but said this, and it's been shaping my work for 35 years. He said, the gospel needs to be delivered to a different address in every generation because every generation moves. Now, what he's not saying is the gospel changes. I mean, there's a certain timelessness of truth and wisdom that is going to be countercultural, and we dare not accommodate that or dilute it. And again, that's the tendency, I think, more today than ever because of the cultural forces and some of the secularization and challenges. We can talk more about that. The pressures of cultural accommodation are much stronger than cultural separation. So I would just say that is a really important to keep in mind. However, we do need to understand that the location of the culture, missiologically, I mean, missiologists talk about this. Newbigin talks about it. Other people talk that we need to understand where that cultural context is, where the implausibility issues are, right? Where those bridges of faith are and where those barriers of faith are. And across time, I would say this is true at some level, won't be dogmatic, but many times, isn't it true that the gospel needs to be profoundly seen 
embodied in community or in the workplace before it can be truly heard. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be bold with proclaiming the gospel, but the gospel in its plausibility is often seen in the embodiment of that community, not just in the proclamation of words. There are various theological and dispositional realities at play here. Yes. Uh, a theologian who I respect a lot recently told me um, for a different project that uh, you can't influence the culture if you hate it. And, right. That's, uh, yes. He was building on the work of the image of God, which he uh, says we often take too narrowly to only talk about in the context of individuals, but even at a social level, that there will be aspects of our culture that reflect God better and poorer, <laughs> that some aspects come from our brokenness and others come from our mm-hmm. come from our the reality that humans are made in God's image. And in that sense, I think what you're saying is there's a deep theology of common grace. I mean, we see that in scripture, right? It doesn't whitewash sin or minimize sin, but there's a sense of God's love for the just and the unjust, right? And that common grace maybe is a theological category that helps us a little in this delicate navigation of culture. Because it seems to me that common grace is the fertile soil, potentially, for saving grace to find root for the gospel. There are a couple dynamics worth highlighting in a conversation about culture. One is a simple definitional one. And I know in your book, you uh, riff a little bit on one definition offered by Andy Crouch, which is basically that culture is what we make, what we do. In fact, we, as members of a society, are making the culture every day and make up the culture. Yet we still feel and sense forces in our culture, uh, waves, things that are happening around us, movements, etc. You referenced earlier different cultural forces happening in the ways we navigate them with this sort of oceanic metaphor. Um, so can you just highlight a couple? So you're a pastoral leader, you're a nonprofit leader, you have been for 30 years. Things are different now than they were 10 years ago, than they were 20 years ago, et cetera. What are some we're facing? How have things shifted for you? Incredibly so. I mean, um, we could go into a lot of details, but I think different shapers of culture, you know, certainly the abstract scholars and the elite makers of ideas, right, that trickle down to the broader cultural context, media, technology. I mean, these are all shapers of what we make of the world and our social imaginary using Charles Taylor's brilliant work, uh, Secular Age. So it's the water we swim and it's the air we breathe and all of us are shaped by it. We shape it, but certain forces shape it more. So let me give you just a couple examples. Um, The questions the culture is asking shifts. And culture, again, is incredibly complex. So uh, we're, we're saying that in a broad way. Some of the main forces and ideas and values and imageries and metaphors uh, that uh, occupy the social imaginary. So in my own experience, I've been in a pastoral role. I was in a parachurch role for 10 years. I've been in a pastoral role for almost 35. And I would say when I first began, one of the biggest questions of the culture, broader culture, was how do I know there's a God? I mean, I grew up in a very secular university and the idea of God seemed to be an antiquated anachronism for a scientific enlightened mind, right? A superstitious kind of idea. There was great uh, pushback against the God hypothesis, right? Macro-revolutionary theory, science, 
the ultimate epistemology of knowing. So I came out of that environment. So much of the culture was like, God seems to be an antiquated idea. But that has shifted because while maybe that's, your God is not the only God, but spirituality began to say, that's valid, right? There's a pushback between the aridity of this reductionism. So it began to, the question began to move, like, I'm spiritual, but I, I'm not a believer in your God, but I'm spiritual, right? So, I mean, that, it begins to shift. There's a more spiritual legitimacy in a culture. So it was very different 35 years ago. So the question began to be, how do I become spiritual? And there was a separation between spirituality and Christianity and God. And the next question was, why church? I mean, like I can be spiritual, like I don't get the church or scandals. So I'm just saying even the cultural broader question about what's the purpose of the church? How does the church, and I'm a pastor of a local church, like is it a value add in culture or is it a value extraction? But I would say an example of the shift is now the question I'm asked by skeptics or whatever is, do you hate gay people? And I don't mean that inappropriately. It's just the shift is around sexual identity, freedom, and the questions seem yeah. more moral than more academic. Yeah. They're not yeah. as much, yeah. did Jesus exist, but right. more, is he good for us? Yeah, so I'm just saying, even the culture as a, as a Christian pastor, as a leader that has a certain worldview and a view of the text that is authoritative and so, so forth. So I'm saying the culture broadly has shifted and the church lives in that, uh, in its plausibility structures, its challenges. So I'm increasingly facing people of goodwill, maybe, and people of good thought who go, I don't see the church as a value add. In fact, I think a lot of churches actually hinder human dignity and hinder human flourishing. That's a massive difference than 35 years ago. At least 35 years ago, people might not agree to the church, but they thought it had some value and credibility. Like that view is your view. I don't agree, but it has credibility. It has value. There's a sense of goodness and moral and a democ morality and a democracy. You're doing some good. By many today, in a broader secular culture, the question that the church is doing good or that Christianity is even good is deeply questioned. So in the quest of the true, good, and beautiful, the pushback today is not about is the church true or is God's word true primarily. It's more is it good and is it beautiful. So I'm saying even in that true, good, and beautiful framework of the human longing, for truth, goodness, and beauty, that has shifted. So there are many factors. I mean, this is a very complex conversation, but it has profoundly shifted in how do we navigate a changing culture as a local church leader or as a leader. When you talk about navigating culture, there's this intellectual aspect of, of viewing and analyzing and trying to understand better. As a local church pastor, as a nonprofit leader, as a business leader, are you doing things differently? Are the tactics different? Is it messaging? What are the actions of navigating? First of all, it's listening really well to people on the ground. I mean, again, I read widely. I read the Wall Street Journal. I mean, there's things that we should be reading so that we can begin to listen or watching certain movies. Or I mean, we need to be aware. Like, what are the messagings? What are the metaphor? What are the ideas that are emerging? I would say that's a cultivating a broad awareness of the shapers of culture, no doubt but we need to listen to people on the ground, not to defend ourselves, not to prove them right or wrong, but to listen with heart and mind. What are their longings? What are their fears? What are their experiences, right? 
And again, we should be good listeners. So I try to listen to people who are not necessarily Christians or who have a different worldview. And it allows me to say, what are the longings of their heart? And then where are the bridges of connection to the gospel, to the truth? Where are their bridges? Where are their barriers that I need to be anticipating and thinking about? And ultimately, how do I love them even though I may differ greatly with them? This is a real challenge on the ground when I have strong convictions on certain matters. For example, sanctity of life. You know, on the unborn, this is a, this is a matter of, in my mind, great moral clarity and great moral urgency. So, for example, how do we navigate the legal, political dynamics of the unborn? Uh, so I'm just giving one example, or on sexual identity, or sexual freedom, or, or these kind of matters. So I have to listen really well. And then I would say words do matter. So how do we begin to reframe language, not to compromise truth, but to reframe language that allows people to listen better to us or to lower the barriers of implausibility. One example is when we talk about male-female, like in the church, and let's say roles or responsibilities, the difference we use now more about maleness and femaleness in local community, because the Bible gives us some direction here, right? And people understand it differently a little bit. But we spend more time talking about responsibility and love than we talk about authority. Now, that doesn't mean there's not authority, but authority is a really tough word today, right? You think about abusive authority, right? Abusive power. And there's a good correction in our culture of that. In the church, for example, right? spiritual abuse and a power uh, dynamic. So I'm just saying that's an example of how do we reframe some language that doesn't compromise truth, but helps people truly understand. Or is there a better language we can use? It's one example. And we, we listen carefully to our culture and what language better communicates the timeless truth to that, that ear. Let's dig into faithful presence a little more. The word presence immediately evokes a physical world. It's We think of presence at holidays or something like that is how we would often use those sorts of terms. Coming out of the pandemic, we talked about church, again, having a presence, you know, something where there. Many of the ideas of separatism or accommodationism, these are more theoretical. So when we talk about a church having a faithful presence as a body, and there's certainly a conversation to be had about individuals and so-called secular workplaces, faith-based workplaces, et cetera, with a presence. How do we go about having a faithful presence? What does that mean for us? Well, first it means having a theology and a social imaginary that moves us in that direction. I mean, we need to have confidence, right, of being called to be in the world, if you want to say that, without being of the world, if I may use that language. So we need to have a theological framework, I mean, as Christians and as Christian leaders, uh, so that we have confidence in our navigation. But I think it means, faithful presence means several things. First of all, as the gathered church versus the scattered church, because you're already alluding to the importance, the primary importance of faithful presence is where God calls us every day on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But as a local body, we have a faithful presence in our institutional space. This is why brick and mortar matter over time. And we can talk more about institutions. But the local church is an organic reality. It's a body, but it's also an institution. So physical presence or faithful presence means 
that the gathered church has a physical recognized presence in the community, just like a family, right? The church is a family. A family has a physical home, a space on the ground that transcends one day to a longevity of time, right? I have a home in a certain place. I have an address. I have a physical connection to that community. So that is where the importance of the institution and the church's physical presence as a home, as a group of people, is so important for the long haul. And then faithful presence means, again, the sense of physical presence, proximity, space, community, continuity across generations, and a long-term time horizon. So faithful presence deeply embodies the physical presence of the gathered church and the scattered church in a very physical space. It is really the sense of the goodness of space and rootedness Mm. over time. And what faithful presence is an idea gives a local church that I think is so helpful and one I'm increasingly learning and trying to learn better is the idea that your church, for example, is to various pockets of Kansas Cityans, (laughs) not to Californians or to uh, various people who may enjoy your preaching ministry or your work with Made to Flourish or these other aspects of you, but there's a certain people who have certain needs, expectations, senses of humor, <laughs> challenges. It's that all of those things that make up a place. And in that sense, it makes it uh, more organic, much in the way that we're parenting specific children and we're married to specific people, not people generically or generally or some t- textbook version of them. Yeah, and this also shapes our faithful presence strategy, our initiatives and means that we accomplish this individually, but also collectively as a church. So you mentioned that Christ Community, right now we have five campuses. We call them parishes in the sense that are in different physical locations in our city. And in that physical location, for example, our downtown campus is in a as an art gallery, as part of its space. We own the building and we are physically present there for the long haul. But that's quite different in a city center arts district uh, as a gathered group of followers of Jesus versus one that's way out in the suburbs, right? So there's a context um, and that parish or that campus reflects continuity, contextualization, day-to-day encounter with people at a local coffee shop, right? And that church's mission in partnerships, for example, with caring for the poor or working in the arts or that kind of thing. So I'm just saying, yes, that is also drives our strategy because we have chosen not to have some massive one regional church space. I'm saying that can be your strategy, but we are also trying to build the gathered space of the local church in a local community that's spread out in different aspects of our city. So faithful presence has a strategic implication for us in a more parish model. Let's talk about this individual aspect or application of faithful presence from the work of a leader. So if you're preparing Mm -hmm. people to have, to increasingly embody a faithful presence, I imagine that's more difficult than maybe didactic style teaching about a topic or working through some stories. There's things you just don't know, I would imagine, about, say, accountancy or uh, construction work or nanny work or stay-at-home mothering or these various things that come into play. Let's just take, for example, an individual that we are 
a member of the flock. I'll use a sheep, someone who's up under our care, uh, staff, congregation, whatever we're serving. What does that mean for us to encourage them to be a faithful presence where God has called them? So several things come to my mind. One is faithful often connotes the idea of a longer-term framework. In other words, a longer-term horizon, a continuity, a longevity. Because we think about faithfulness is often, yeah, it can be seen in a moment, but it's often really fully observed with a span of time. Right? I mean, just thinking about being faithful, right? It's not just one moment. So what I would want someone to grasp to be a faithful presence is the sense that God is with me. God has called me today or in this place to be and do this kind of thing, whatever that vocation is or where I'm called. So I want to have the idea that unless the Lord specifically moves me on to another space and responsibility, that I have the assumption that God has called me here for the long haul. He's called me to this space, to these relationships, to a place of rootedness for the long haul. I call it the longevity factor, the long-term horizon. So I would want, even when it's a hard space, I would want people to say, no, the grass is not greener. I'm only here for a short time. I'm not gonna really you know, engage in relationships. I, unless God specifically moves me, I'm here for the long haul. Of course, that has real implications for the pastor leader and the Christian leader, that the tendency is to jump ship when things are hard and go find grass and it's greener on the other side. So to bloom where we're planted, we have to guard against a short-term horizon, looking for grass somewhere else. Uh, I think that's a really, really important point is that we are called there specifically, God is with us, and that we have a long-term perspective. So we're digging in for the long haul, even if it's hard. Christians often report that their churches don't prepare them for the pressures, opportunities, or challenges of their daily work. At Made to Flourish, we call this the Sunday to Monday Gap, an unhealthy divide that can blur our understanding of God's work in the world, work we're meant to join. To help close that gap, we want to give you a collection of practical theological books that we mail directly to you, completely free of charge. In this free box, you'll also get a copy of the latest issue of the award-winning Common Good magazine, and for a limited time, Tom Nelson's book, The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. So whether you're a pastor or layperson, visit madetoflourish.org slash box to get the box for free and start closing the gap between Sunday and Monday. That's madetoflourish.org slash box. Vocational discipleship may or may not be something people are familiar with. What is it and how do you go about doing it uh, at Christ Community? Yeah, Faithful Presence has profound influence and uh, guiding strategy in terms of whole life discipleship. I think most of us who are Christian leaders or pastors understand that a primacy of our calling is to help others be formed as fully yoked apprentices of Jesus where they live, work, and play. And I think the big piece here is that faithful presence means that discipleship is focused on the majority places where people live, work, and play. That as important as Sunday is in the gathered space, and I'm passionate about that, the primacy of our focus, our discipleship efforts, our curriculum, our pastoral care, 
is in where people spend the majority of their life. This is the shift, and I know we're going to talk more about this at other in other contexts. But this has been a massive shift for me, who cares deeply about discipling God's people, that we are discipling them with Monday in mind. The, the language we often talk about at Christ Communities, the church I serve, is that we're a church for Monday. Now, that doesn't diminish Sunday in any way, quite the contrary. But it helps people understand that our mission to equip them, to see them formed in greater Christ-likeness, to see them on this path of wholeness, is the primary place where God has called them, paid or unpaid, and their Monday world is the primary place where they worship God, where they're formed in Christ-likeness, where they embody the gospel, where they proclaim the gospel and serve the common good. So our discipleship efforts, our formative efforts, is helping them understand how the primary place of discipleship takes place, not in a sermon. Again, sermon's important, don't get me wrong. Not in the discipleship class, that's important, but in their Monday world. And so that is where faithful presence is the primacy of their discipleship, training, equipping, and impact. And the significance of that for a local church or a pastor is a profoundly different shaping of the primacy of their mission, the budget, their prayers, their preaching, and so forth. In your book, The Flourishing Pastor, you sort of put a bow on your faithful presence conversation with these four practices. And we've already touched on uh, two of them. It's this idea of longevity, aiming for longevity is the way you word it. And this other idea of having a kingdom mindset, which I think is another thing we've already touched on. There are two others, though, that would be interesting to dig into. And it's this idea of institutions, building enduring institutions, and then promoting truth, goodness, and beauty. Can you talk about institutions? One of the things I missed for so long as a pastor was I was primarily focused on individual transformation of God's people. I'm still passionate about that. What I wasn't trained to think, what I wasn't thinking is the next stewardship. And that's the stewardship that pastors have of the goodness of the institution itself. Someone said once that without individuals, nothing ever changes. Without institutions, nothing ever endures. Now think about that. There's really wisdom there. Because as a pastor, as a leader of a 501c3 or as a leader, you have a stewardship of the individuals within that organization for their longevity, their health, their well-being. That's right, shepherding the flock. But you also have the stewardship of the health of that institution, its capacity, right? Its health, its uh, vitality, its innovation, its planning, because the institution creates that ongoing faithful presence, that space, that context, that programming, that initiative, right? That place in the community for many individuals to be transformed. We're not transformed just in isolation. We're transformed in community and that community finds its vitality in an institutional continuity. So I simply wanna say is that I never imagined that in a job review, or in my, my priorities as a senior lead pastor, that yes, I have a stewardship and my team, how are we seeing people formed in Christ-likeness? How are we unleashing them for mission on Monday? Hugely important. How are we helping them in their vital marriages if they're married, right? But I have a stewardship to continually give input, give initiative, 
nourish, evaluate the institutional aspect of the health of the whole church in its buildings and its budgets and its priorities and its values. And that's what I really missed for so long. And so now in a job review or our focus is that we look at both, what's the evidence of individual formation in our community of faith, in our programming, right? Preaching, how are we doing? And caring for the poor and so forth. But how is the institution itself healthy? How are we building capacity for expansion, for more people perhaps to be formed? And that leads to us building buildings and doing things like that because we need more institutional continuity and capacity. So that's what I'm saying is like faithful presence focuses on institutions. Now, many of us grew up where we're very suspect of institutions and institutions can lose their way. Institutions can become calcified. The big question is, what do we do? Do we abandon them? I think that's incredibly foolish and myopic. They need to be renewed. Or maybe sometimes we need to establish a new institution. But I'm saying that is the awareness I didn't have when I started pastoring that now I am deeply committed to. And we see the fruitfulness at Christ's community because we have a dual attention there. We have attention to individual transformation from cradle to grave. But also we evaluate the institutional health as a whole. Mm-hmm. It would also seem to inform the ways in which you prepare people and that there are institutions in which your people and, and Christian people who are part of churches all over the place are embedded, uh, be it government, uh, financial institutions, community, et cetera. Yeah, we would share with people as we form, help them form is that institutions are not barriers. They're actually built into God's design. And however you understand the institution, for example, marriage is an institution and the importance of marriage informing people and bringing flourishing. And as you said, some would hold that government in scripture is an institution, however flawed it is, right? But also the local church is to be seen as an institution. Mm-hmm. Now, promoting truth, goodness, and beauty. We've talked about this various aspects as from almost an apologetic perspective, but it's funny, this ancient triad is the language typically uh, used here, how they both fit together. And then now what we need to talk about is how do they fit into this pastoral work? What is a pastoral leader? What are leaders doing to promote truth, goodness, and beauty? And how does it relate to faithful presence? Faithful presence has all three of those aspects. And I think, I think again, as a pastor leader, as a leader, we want to think about, again, what's the intentional engagement and celebrated value of all three of those? Uh, and sometimes they intersect beautifully. And I think one of the ways they intersect beautifully is often in art. So at Christ Community, the church I serve, uh, we have a, a lot of emphasis on the, on the arts. This not only embodies common grace, but as I've said many times, it's an avenue for saving grace to find a rootedness in a culture and in a person's mind and imagination and heart. So we have a lot of boots on the ground here. I mean, actual engagement in the arts. We One of our campuses, for example, our downtown campus, is in the arts district. And we actually have an outstanding art gallery that is woven right into the physical structure of our campus. So we are promoting the importance of art. And the history of the church did that. And I think the most recent sort of maybe 50, 60 years, we've not done that intentionally, the importance of the art. And this is a place where faithful presence finds a sense of connection with the culture. 
Of course, there's art and culture that reflects the brokenness of culture or values that are different. But I think many churches, many leaders see that through a utilitarian lens rather than an intrinsic lens that points us to the beauty of God's creation or God's design. Also to the brokenness of our story. So art reflects the story and we try to, uh, actually we call our gallery the four chapter gallery. Imagine in a city like Kansas City where there's a gallery named Four Chapters. And on first Friday where thousands and thousands of people come to the arts district to hang, they walk into the Four Chapter Gallery, which is brilliant, beautiful art. And they go, what is Four Chapter? Hmm. Well, someone who's there, a volunteer who's there, said, well, the art gallery believes that our longings and the reality of life reflects a story. And that story is that we were created a certain way. The world was created as an ought, right? The, we call it the audience can will. It was created a certain way. That original design has been broken. But there's the goodness that we have hope that there's redemption. And one day, right, there will be a fullness of what our hearts long for. So this creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or we call the audience can will story, is a quick connection to anyone, for example, who walks in the art like, what do you mean four chapters? That our heart longing and reality that I experience every day, wherever my worldview, whatever I'm dealing with, reflects this creation, fall, redemption, consummation story. It's a story we find ourselves in all of us. And is there brokenness? Yes. Is there hope? Yes. So, I mean, just saying that informs our art. Uh, and that's just one example where we are promoting the beauty in our city. And goodness finds its way in multiple ways of job creation and other ways where we promote goodness of caring for the poor and the marginalized as well. There's a lot more we could discuss when it comes to issues of culture, navigating culture, understanding culture, and our position in it. Uh, a lot of those resources are alluded to, pointed to, in Tom's work on this topic, which of course comes from his newest book, The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Art of Shepherd Leadership, uh, which you can get wherever it is you buy books. Tom is the president of Made to Flourish. He's also the senior pastor of Christ Community Church in Kansas City. You can learn more about Made to Flourish at madetoflourish.org, where you can also reach out to Tom. Our show is made with a lot of help from Sound On Studios in Nashville. Yeah.